0: Hey, good morning. Hey, we are uh, jumping in this morning into a series called "Scandalous," and here's what we're going to be doing for the next couple of weeks. We're going to be talking about Bible stories uh, that you, in all likelihood, have probably never heard. And more than likely have never heard anyone preach on these stories, because at the end of the day, they are pretty darn scandalous. And matter of fact, uh, if you've ever read your Bible and read some of these stories, you probably got to the end of the story and said, why in the world, what, why, why did get that get included in Scripture? I mean, that's just, that's crazy, dark stuff. Here's why we're doing this. First off, you get that every one of those stories, as wild, as eccentric, as far out there as they are… God put into Scripture on purpose. God didn't make a mistake. He didn't just go, oh, that's pretty juicy, stick it in, see if we can sell a few more Bibles. He didn't do that. Um, He put it there because there are incredible life lessons to be learned through some of the most scandalous uh, moments in people's lives. And so you and I, when we don't take the time to unpack that, when we kind of homogenize and clean up church a little bit and and leave these stories out… We miss a whole bunch of life lesson together, so we put the PG-13 signs up there. I want to remind you again today, if you've got little kids in here, it's a PG-13 because this is scandalous stuff we're going to be doing together for the next couple of weeks. The second thing, and the other place I think that you and I make a mistake on this is that when you and I kind of sanitize the Bible for people, I, I think people who are far from God and people who are struggling their life and who would say, man, my life is pretty dark, And I think the Bible is written by a bunch of people who never struggled with what I struggle with, never stumbled, never had a hard day, never were tempted the way I'm tempted. And when you and I leave these stories out, then they go, these people don't get me. When the reality is, (laughs) they get you. Uh, The people in the Bible, although they may have had moments of unbelievable success and great moments in following God, some of those same people, and one of them we're going to study today stumbled probably worse than you've ever stumbled and and have done things that you can't imagine in your life. And we just just don't talk about it uh, enough in church. So we're just going to unpack it. We're going to take a few weeks and just do the most scandalous stories in Scripture and see what God will do in our lives. And I hope at the end of the day, He will deeply, 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 profoundly change us because you and I were not scared to be scandalous at church. So uh, here we go. We're going to unpack it uh, today. As a matter of fact, if you want, you can grab your Bibles and go to 2 Samuel chapter 13. If you're not real familiar, if you just go to the front of your Bible, work to the right, you're going to find Second Samuel uh, chapter 13. Here's the deal. Here's what we're going to unpack and discover today. Every one of us, every one of us has a worst moment of my life. Every one of us has a moment in which we go, man, if if there were such a thing as do, I wish I could have a do over. Or maybe we don't wish we had a do over. We just said, you know what? That really, really dark, really, really bad moment in my life was necessary. Unfortunately, the circumstances were such and the way things lined up. But here's the deal every one of us has something that, if we were to take it out and examine it, is pretty darn ugly and it smells and it's scary. And none of us really wants to talk about that moment in our lives. So here's what we do. We do a lot of pretending. We, we, just, we just say to ourselves, look, look, if, I, if we don't talk about it, if, if we don't deal with it, if we just move on, then maybe it'll get so far in my past that nobody will remember it anymore. Maybe maybe, maybe we can just act like doing that thing that moment when I lied so blatantly and desperately, that, that moment when I cheated, uh, that, that moment when I blew my family to shreds, that, that, that moment at work when I, I did what no employee should do. Let, let's, just, let's just pretend it never happened. And maybe if it gets far enough, maybe if it gets distant enough, then, then we can just, we can just, we can pretend that it didn't change me, and it didn't affect anything, and it's just part of my past. Because, well, could we pretend? Some of us justify it. See, some of us go, look, look, look. I, no, you no, it, yeah, it is. It's dark, and it was bad, and it was horrible. But, but here's the thing. If you'd have been in my shoes, if you'd, seen, if you'd been married to the person I was married to, you'd have done exactly what I did. If you'd been facing the financial crisis that I was facing, you'd have done what i done. And we justify. Sometimes we minimize. You know, you know I mean, I mean no, no, it, it, it's not as big as you think it is. It, it's, it, it, if, you, if, if you really took it in perspective, it's just a little thing in my life. And here's what we do. Here's what we do with the darkest, the worst, the most horrible parts of our lives is we find some way to manipulate that moment and put it away where, where nobody has to look at it and, and I don't have to deal with it because, because if I can do that, then maybe it won't bother me or hurt me or haunt me in my life. It's skeletons in the closet. And here's why this is so huge, guys. Because I can promise you that some of us walked in this room today with stuff. With stuff. With, with ill-lived moments. With, with moments that, that we would never want to have see the light of day. We wouldn't want anybody to expose. And, and, and we, we have spent a lifetime just kind of packing it away and ignoring that it happened and just kind of saying to everybody involved, look, can we just move on? Can we just get away from there? And we've never dealt with it, and we've never... It, it's, it's safe. Yeah, let's go. And here's what we're going to discover in our first scandalous story together. That what you and I do with our skeletons, with those deep, dark, horrible moments of our lives, will change our lives forever. And that the ready for this? And that the most dangerous place to put a skeleton is in the closet. So here we go. 2nd Samuel chapter 13. Let, let me give you a little bit of background and then we'll unpack it together. It actually comes out of the life of a guy by the name of David, which you all know, but chances are you haven't heard this part of the life of David and really it involves his son, his son's name is Amnon, and Amnon decides that he is absolutely, unequivocally head over heels in love with his half-sister. He decides he cannot live without her, he cannot go on without her, he has to have her. And so, matter of fact, he gets so bad, he's so stuck in lovesickness, that his friend, his best friend, looks at Amnon and says, dude, something's wrong with you, I mean, you are so out of it. And Amnon then says to his friend, because I'm in love with Tamar. I'm in love with my half sister and I can't eat, I can't sleep. I don't think I can go on in life until I have her. This friend says, Dude, you can do this. i tell you what you do tell everybody you're sick. Tell them you're not feeling well, stay in your bedroom for a couple days. Wait till the king comes to check on you. Wait till David comes to see how his son is doing. And when he comes, tell your father David this to say, Look, dad. I, I, I don't get it. I'm not sure why I've been sick so long. I'm, but here's what I'm thinking. If I had something to eat, I think maybe I could rally. Would you do this? Would you send Tamar to me? Because she makes this amazing flatbread. And, and if she would come cook and, and feed me for a while, I think I could rally from this thing. He says, when Dad grants your request, you'll have Tamar in your bedroom, and you can take it from there. So here's where we pick up. 2 Samuel chapter 13, starting in verse 7, David sent word to Tamar at the palace, "'Go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him.' So Tamar went to his house of her, of her brother Amnon, who was lying down. She took some dough and kneaded it and made bread in, the site, in his sight and baked it. And then she took the pan and served him the bread, but he refused to eat." "'Send everyone out of here,' Amnon said. So everyone left him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, "'Bring the food here into my bedroom so that I may eat from your hand.' And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, "'Come to bed with me, my sister.' No, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. So she's saying, look, look, I mean, if it's, before you do this, let's strike some sort of compromise. I mean, it'd probably be weird, but talk to dad and... But he refused to listen to her, and since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Ready for this? Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Isn't it interesting what guilt does in your life and my life? Here's a guy who cannot live without his sister. And the moment he has her, he is so racked with regret, so racked with guilt. Scripture says he now hates her with more intensity than with which he had loved her. Ever tasted that part of sin? I have to, I have to, I have to. Then Amnon hated her with an intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. No, she said to him, sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you've already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and said, get this woman out of my sight and bolt the door after her. Word seeps out. You don't do something like this and keep it under wraps. And eventually it gets to the throne, and David hears what his son has done with his sister. Matter of fact, if you jump down to verse 21, here's what it says about David. When King David heard all this, he was furious. He is out of his head mad. And So picture this moment. Scripture doesn't say it, but picture this moment, okay? Here's King David. He's heard what Amnon has said. He knows he's been duped. And now he leaves the palace, and he's storming to Amnon's house. I mean, he is walking. And you can imagine, as he, makes, as he heads that way, he's thinking every possible thing. I will cut his head off. I will cut something else off. I will do whatever I have to do. You, you will not do this in Israel. You will not do this in my house. Amnon is in for a licking. And as David heads there full force and ready to bring justice, guess what he does next? He stops. He never, you ready? He never makes it to Amnon's house. He does nothing. And you and I in this moment want to go, David, wait, 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 wait a minute. This is God, David. I mean, this is obvious. I mean, come on, David. I mean, I, I get it. I get that there's other things in your life that may be more subtle, and there may be moments in which you know you don't know should I do something. Should this is a do something, David? David, you can't let this go unchecked. You can't pause. Go. How is it possible? How is it possible that this happens in the house of David and that David never makes it to his son's house? It's not a matter of courage. I mean, think about it. David's the guy who, when he was 16, runs headlong into the battlefield after a guy named Goliath. David doesn't have a courage deficit, it's not integrity. God came to David when he was a young man and said, David, Saul is not going to be the king. You're going to be the king. Saul's not living well. He's been incompetent. You're going to be his replacement. And in the midst of that, Saul becomes jealous of David and begins to chase David and tries to kill David. And then there comes a day where Saul is sleeping in a cave and it just happens to be the cave that David had taken a rest in. And his own men, David's men said to him, sneak up and kill Saul. God has clearly delivered your enemy into your hands and you do that and you can be king. And guess what David's response is? No. Because even though he's incompetent and even though he's been unbelievably wrong to me and unfair to me he's still my king and if god doesn't want him to be king then let god remove him i will not remove him to get promotion guys it's not integrity david's not a guy who struggles with doing the right thing so why is he paralyzed Why? Why does he get halfway to his son's house and turn around and go home? Because David's got a skeleton in his closet. He's he's got an ill-lived moment in his life that's never been rectified, that's never been dealt with, that's never been brought in the light of life. And what David has done to his family is he said, look, look, let's just pretend Let's just let's just move on. Let's just forget this moment. It, and many of you know the moment. It's Bathsheba. See, here's what David has done in his past. He sees a woman that ready that he wants, and he's willing to do anything he has to do to get her, even kill her husband. And so, what he did in that moment is he. The, her husband happened to be one of the captains in his army, and so he ordered his general and said, look, we're going to do a suicide mission up against the Philistine camp, and when the whole squad gets up there, you leave Bathsheba's husband, Captain Uriah, you leave him there and let everybody else run away, and you will have succeeded if he dies. So here's the problem. David, in the most crucial moment, the leadership of his home, the most you and I are going to watch his entire family is going to spiral out of control. And David is paralyzed because halfway there he goes, I think I know what Amnon would say. he say, Dad, the apple doesn't far, fall far from the tree. You had a woman you wanted, I had a woman I wanted. You did anything that was necessary to get her, I did whatever was necessary to get her. And, Ted, if you rebuke me, then you're a hypocrite. And are you ready? In the most crucial moment of David's life, in the, in the most important moment as a father, maybe in the most important moment as a king, he turns around and goes home because he's got a skeleton in the closet. Not the end. He loses one of his other sons. Matter of fact, he loses Absalom, who, guys, and you may not know this, Absalom was next in line. It wasn't supposed to be Solomon. Absalom's his firstborn. Absalom's the son who's supposed to sit on the throne. And this moment forever changes the trajectory of David's family. It skews it absolutely out of control. Matter of fact, if you go back to the passage, go back to verse 22, here's what it says. Absalom, the eldest son of David, never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. And for two and a half years, Absalom waits. Waits while his dad is incompetent. Waits while his dad is paralyzed. Waits while nothing happens. Waits till Amnon decides, well, hey, apparently this is the culture of the family. Apparently you can do whatever dark thing you need to do. You can, you can live. And then, and then, you ready? The household of David pretends. that You just kind of close it away, and then you go on with life, and you, and you pretend it never really, really happened. Apparently this is the culture of our family, Amnon thinks. And then Absalom calls a feast. It's the time for shearing uh, the sheep. And uh, they've just had that happen successfully. And so Absalom says to all the sons of David, hey, let's get together. It's been a good year. I'm throwing a banquet to celebrate. We're getting ready to take all the wool in and sell it at the marketplace. So let's celebrate uh, the good harvest. Let's do that together. And Amnon comes. And Absalom says to his men, okay, guys, here's the deal. When you and I get Amnon good and drunk and I give the word, you slay the dog. And don't worry about what will happen because I'm the one that gave the order and I'll stand by it. But don't you hesitate. You kill my brother. Because apparently my dad is incapable of responding. Apparently my dad is impotent. So I will do what my dad cannot do. And they have the feast and Absalom gives the order and Amnon is killed. And guys, here's the problem. It wasn't Absalom's job to do. And so now he's a fugitive. Get this. The next king of Israel is a fugitive as an own country. And his heart is forever turned. And Absalom will never make it to the throne. So here's the deal, guys. In the heart of Absalom, you know what he's saying about his father David. This is just one more time. So here's the deal. There was the whole Bathsheba thing. And, and you know, probably in all likelihood, Absalom's probably six or seven when the whole Bathsheba thing takes place, but he's, he's old enough to be aware. And, and he hears the whispers in the palace, and everybody knows, in the inner circle. And now here comes this moment, and he goes, my, my dad is a wreck. My, my dad doesn't deserve to be leading our family, let alone this country. So I will fix what my dad cannot do. Here's why this is so crucial for you and me to be talking about. Because some of us walked in this room today with skeletons in our closet. And here, here's what you've said. You said, look, look, look. It's long enough ago, and it's forgotten. By... I know, I know, I know when I did that. I know I ripped up my family. But man, that's years ago, Lynn. I mean, that's 20 years ago. It was yesterday for Absalom. Can I just say this to you? It's yesterday for your kids. See, some of us came to this room and we said, look, no, no, you're right. I, I, I stabbed that friend in the back. I did. I, it was a hard moment and self-preservation kicked in. and Or maybe I got mad and... I didn't treat him very much like a friend. But land that's 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 10 years ago. Come on. We're adults. They're over it. You lied. You lied. It was an important moment and truth was needed and you lied. And he would say, look, but Lynn, ever since then, I mean, ever since that moment, I've been a truth teller. I mean, yeah, I mean. And you just need to hear me say, skeletons in the closet don't go away. And what happens in a family that has skeletons in the closet, what happens in a workplace that has skeletons, what happens in a closet is every time someone walks by, you smell it. Every time times get tough and tensions come, everybody goes, oh, are we doing this again? Because no matter how hard you've worked to seal that up, the stink remains. And I'm just going to tell you, your kids, your kids are waiting for you to come and say, dad was wrong. Mom blew it that friend that friend has been hoping every day since then till now that you would come and say i'm sorry i wasn't a good friend that employer that employer has been wondering from that day till now how a christian could have behaved the way you behaved and it's yesterday Here's the interesting thing in the story. Did you know David's heart was right with God? See, David, David. here's what David has done. David said, look, look, no, 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 look, I, I've, I've, already, I've already talked of this, or, I mean, I've already repented of this. Matter of fact, get this, guys, get, this is so crucial. The sin of Bathsheba is told, ready, 2 Samuel chapter 12. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, the, get this, the chapter just before this chapter, before the scandalous chapter, is David on his knees in sackcloth going before God and saying, God, I blew it. I am so sorry. I, it was a horrible thing. I should have never done it. David has absolutely pleaded this before God, has begged for forgiveness, and he's received forgiveness for God. And here's what David would say, look, I, I've already confessed this thing, and God and I are Good. And here's what you and I are going to discover. That you and I being okay with God isn't enough. If we've got a skeleton in the closet, he said, Well, then what, what, am I, what am I supposed to do? How do? What do you do? Because you're talking about me. And here's what you need to hear me say. That what I'm going to propose, what I'm going to say out loud right now is so counterintuitive. It is so against what your heart is going to naturally, because your heart naturally raced to hiding and pretending. It doesn't change the fact that it's what you and I have to do. I'm jogging the other day. I know that's surprising for some of you. <laughs> New Year's resolution, all that. I'm jogging the other day, and there's this canal behind uh, my house. And I guess during this season, it just so happens there's a whole bunch of white cranes uh, that are coming to the canal. They're fishing for fish. So you start down the canal running, and you can just see this line of like 50 white cranes down the canal. So I'm running along, and sure enough, I get close to the first one, and immediately he takes flight. But here's the interesting thing. Here's what the crane apparently said in his mind. I feel the pressure of this vicious, mean jogger pastor guy coming toward me. So instinct tells me, fly away, fly away, just create some distance. So guess what the crane does in its unbelievable intelligence? It flies another 50 feet down the canal, which simply means that I'm going to now close the gap and we're going to do this again. So picture this, all the way down the canal, I'm picking up a herd of cranes because they just keep moving down, and I keep scaring them further. I start to get close to Queen Creek, and I think, okay, I'm just going to go across Queen Creek, and then it'll be done. Absolute instinct. Every crane in the runaway herd thought they were doing the right thing. It was going to go on forever until one crane, ready for this? One crane, instead of doing what was instinctual, instead of flying away, flew to the side, waited for me to pass, flew back to the canal. It was interesting. Once the one crane did it, they all started doing it. So now I had this, and it was, it was a line, it was the weirdest thing. They all flew over, they made a line in the field next to me, and, and, and then they just watched. And I jogged on by, and then 50 cranes flew back to the canal. Because one guy did what wasn't instinctual. See, here's what what Jesus is going to do to your world and my world right now. He's going to say, don't do what's instinct. Because if you do what's instinct, you'll, you'll never be done with this. The mean, horrible, jogger, pastor will chase you the rest of your life. Go to the side, go to the side, go to the side. So grab your Bibles. Here we go. Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. If you're not real familiar, it's going to be way toward the back of your Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. This is Jesus talking. I think he's talking about this very issue in our lives. Unkept closets. Here's what he says. Therefore... If any of you are offering your gift at the altar, you're in the middle of church service, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. You've wounded them. You've lived a moment that we all know you lived, and it was bad. We've never dealt with it, and we've never fixed it. Leave your gift. There in front of the altar, get up. Get up. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come. Offer your Isn't that interesting? Do you realize what Jesus is saying? He's saying, look, if you've played the game and said, look, I'm okay with God, and I've got that all figured out, and look, here's the deal. My friend's never going to forgive me anyways, and it's probably, you know, I probably have lost that friend for life, so why go through the humiliation? Why go through that? My wife's not asking me to just drag the... It'd be painful for her if we just really... T- I'm going to tell her that I've been looking at pornography. No, but I've confessed to God. I've, God and I are. You get know what Jesus said? You find yourself praying at church, and you realize there's someone in your life you've wronged. There's 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 unkept business with your brother or your sister or your wife or your son or your daughter. Get up get up and do that first because you're not ready to meet with God when there's skeletons in your closet. And he, You get what he's saying? He's saying, go back. Go back to that moment and, and drag it back out into the light. Just put it in full view and say, look, I did it. I did And I'm not going to justify I'm not going to sit here and say, if you were in my shoes, you'd have done it. I'm not going to sit here and tell you why if your mother was a better mother, I wouldn't. I I did it. And the truth is, you know what the truth The truth is, it stank. And it was wrong. And I wounded you. And I'm sorry. You get that it's exactly what David was lacking. That if he had already done this, he would have had the ability to make it to his son's house because he would have already put on the table, I did this and it was wrong, so you're crazy to do it in my footsteps. I already told you about this. I've already dealt with this with you. I've already exposed it for what it was. Years ago, I'm doing my first youth pastorate, first serious youth pastorate, Some of you have heard the story, but I followed an incredibly popular guy. His name was Mark, and and Mark was just the coolest dude in the world. Part of what Mark did, and it's what you do when you're a 27-year-old youth pastor, is, is he did some things with the kids that little on the edge, little out there. So here I come. I'm straight-laced youth path. I won't, I won't do any of those things. So I am the stick in the mud. I'm the jerk. And it's not long till we're in the youth group, and it's pretty obvious, top to bottom, all the kids wish Mark was back and Lynn was gone. And I'm going, this isn't fair. I'm just doing the right thing. I'm, <laughs> I'm about six months in, and here's what I know. I'm, I'm losing them. I'm losing them. And we end up at winter camp. And I come up with this desperate scheme, this desperate plan to win the hearts of some of the kids, at least the boys. So here's what I do. I take all of them into chapel as we first begin. I say, guys, we're going to pray for winter camp. And and girls, you stand here and pray. I'm going to take the guys out here. We're going to pray. I get all the guys outside and I go, dudes, you're going to think I am the coolest youth pastor in the world when I get done. We're going to go raid the girls' cabins. We're going to steal everything out. When they go back, there's not going to be anything. All their stuff's going to be missing. And we're going to, we're going to go to the church bus, and we're going, to, we're going to load it in the church bus, and then when they, you know, ha, ha, ha. So we do. We go in, and the guys are like, yeah, you're the best youth pastor ever. Yeah. And they're grabbing all the stuff. I get to the back of the bus. I swing the door open, and the guys, for some reason, I don't know, they didn't put it in gently. They stand at the back of the bus, hocking the girl's stuff in. So picture this: purses, perfume, makeup, unclosed suitcases, which means they now have personal items in there that those girls would have been petrified to have ever seen out. It kind of occurred to me. I just kind of passed my mind. Hmm. Can you believe, would you believe this? The girls were not good sports at all. <laughs> they, got, they got back to their cap. They, they, they couldn't take a joke. They were mad. Matter of fact, you ready for this? They called the We Hate Lynn meeting and invited me to come. They invited the boys to come. How long do you think the boys stood with me? All of a sudden, you heard, I have no, Lynn made me do it. I knew from the beginning it was a bad idea, but Lynn said, do it. (laughs) And suddenly, 60 kids in the room hated my guts worse than ever. And they began for the next hour to just emotionally vomit every ounce of hate, everything I had ever done wrong. You looked at me sideways. Can I tell tell you that every part of my 20-something-year-old heart said, justify. Tell them if they had been fair and if they hadn't loved Mark more than you and if they'd just given you a fair shake. Let's just smooth over the moment, pretend it really, and then let's just see if we can go on and maybe we'll have another moment to win their hearts. And Maybe in a Maybe in a singular moment of clarity, I decided just to call the skeleton the skeleton. I decided to say, "Guys, you're right. It was dumb, and it was stupid. I was scared out of my mind, and I, I knew you liked Mark, and I knew you didn't like me. But I, I'm just not going to pretend." I'm a jerk, and I'm I'm just going to ask you if you would even consider forgiving a jerk. For the next 30 minutes in the meeting, we wept together, and 60 high school kids forgave me, and I became their youth pastor that day. I get it, I get it, I get it. I, I get I'm talking about something stupid like throwing stuff in the back of a bus and you're going, no, Lynn, you don't get it. My skeleton's so much darker. No, I get it. But here's what you need to hear me say. It doesn't change the fact that pulling the skeleton out of the closet and putting it in the light is Powerful. And that what has forever haunted you and forever had the capacity to come up and grab you at the worst possible time, what has caused people to distrust you and forever write a story about you that says, let me tell you about dad, let me tell you about mom, let me tell you about that friend, can be rewritten when you and I pull the skeleton into the light. Why Jesus says, "You got a skeleton? Get up. Get up. Go get it." You want to hear something? Just if, if that's not enough, it's kind of the other foot down. It's it's it's, it's the amazing part about this conversation. The power of bringing the skeleton, of bringing that moment into the light, not only is that forgiveness happens and freedom happens, very often our God turns our skeleton into our ministry. He actually makes it our platform of credibility in the future. I'm nine years old, and you guys have heard, my parents were divorcing I've just, heard the, I've just heard, and I can't believe that my family is falling apart. I can't believe God's letting this happen. And I run to my friend Steve's house, Stephen Hill. And a 9, nine year old I'm, I'm there, I'm weeping, and I'm saying, my whole family is falling apart, my Christian home. And Dad's been cheating on Mom. And Mr. Hill, I will never forget this, Mr. Hill looks at me and says, Lynn, come over here and sit at the table. And he brings his wife and he brings his son, my friend Stephen, and he says, Lynn, there's hope. Let me tell you why there's hope. Because I cheated on my wife. I I ran around with my secretary and I was gone and I moved out of the house and then I came to my senses and I came home and I begged for forgiveness and my wife forgave me and my son forgave me. Lynn, Lynn, there's hope. You get what Mr. Hill did. He took, he took the darkest skeleton of his life, and in the life of a little nine-year-old boy, he held it up and said, that's what I did. And you know why he could do that? Because it wasn't in the clock. He'd already dealt with his wife, and he'd already dealt with his son, and he'd already found forgiveness. And his greatest failure actually became The platform for ministry with me. And a nine-year-old boy walked home that day thinking, hey, there's hope. Guys, you've sat in this service. You've seen us have women up here on stage who said, look, I've got an abortion, and and I regret the moment. I I would never do the moment again. And because the skeleton's not in the closet, it actually is their ministry. And here's what you need to know. When those women came up on stage and shared that moment in their life and scores of our women, scores of our women grabbed them in the lobby and said, I need to talk to you about me. They didn't come to me. They came to those women who had the courage. Here's what it was, and it was dumb, and it was a mistake. You, you guys have seen men come up on this stage and say, look, I, I'm, I, I, was, I was so caught up in porn I was so deeply struggling with this stuff, and my family had no idea, and then I got caught. And can I tell you, if you go to those men, now they say, when we got, Lynn, you don't know, we had tens upon tens upon tens of men come to us and say, Help me out, because I'm here too. They didn't come to me. I don't think I had a single guy come to me. Because those men had the courage to say, No, And bring it into light the platform. It's, it's It's the wonder of doing what Jesus asked and going absolutely against what you and I have done till now. So here's my question. You ready? Got a skeleton? Got a skeleton? You know what Jesus would say? Get up. He'd say, he'd say, when this service is over, you go make a phone call. You go call a family meeting. You go get that friend and say, can we have coffee? Jesus would say, get up. Open the closet. Bring it into light. Let's pray. Here's what I'm going to ask. We don't do this very often. I'm just going to ask Every head bowed, I'm going to ask you to have the integrity to keep your head bowed. Don't, don't you dare look to see what your wife is doing. <laughs> and I'm just going to ask with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, how many in the room, and you don't have to raise it very high, but how many would just say, Lynn, I just, I just, I just got to say today, I, got, I think I got a skeleton. And I, I think I know. Look, all over this room, all over this room. You can put them down. Anybody else? Anybody else? Say, Lynn, I, I, th- I think this was my conversation. Okay. Okay. So we, we needed to say this today, right? So look, here's here I'm going to challenge you to do. The only reason I asked you to raise your hand was so that you would know that God knows, that you know. And I'm just going to ask you to have the courage, when this service is over today, to do what you need to do. To go make the phone call. To find a moment with your family. Maybe it isn't today. Maybe it's a... But find the moment with your family. to say, look, I... We all know there was this moment in my life. And I just, I just need to ask you to forgive me. I'm not going to pretend it, it was bad. And it, I'm sorry. And I will not do it again. I will not do it again. Skeleton out of the closet. Dear Lord Jesus, give us courage. Because the truth is, we walked in this room in fear. We walked in saying, please don't let people know about that. Let's just pretend it never happened. Let's just leave it in the past where it belongs. God, it'll haunt us. It, it'll paralyze us at the most important moments of our lives. It'll, it'll wreck our credibility with our family. It will destroy our relationships with our friends. Everybody be waiting for the next skeleton. And so, God, we're just... We're just committed this morning. We're going to do exactly what you asked us to do. We're going to to leave our sacrifice at the altar. We're going to get up and we're going to go to that friend. And we're going to go to that. I don't care if it's 20 years ago. We're going to go to that family member and we're going to say, I've got a skeleton. And you, you may have been waiting 20 years for me to come back and just say, I was wrong. And I'm here and I'm saying it. I was wrong. And will you forgive me? This needs to be in the light. In Jesus' precious name, amen.